Thanks so much for listening to episode one, Andrea Yates. Editing is not easy, so please forgive me for any poor quality sound. I promise I'll get better as we go along. (laughs) Becky is a dear friend of mine who loves true crime, so it was natural that we start our own pod. Yeah, thank you guys so much for coming back for another episode. We have so much content planned, and we're looking forward to sharing it with you guys. I hope you guys will like what we have in store for you today. We're going to be talking about Omar Mateen, the Pulse nightclub shooter. I still remember waking up to the news of this case and being horrified. So, you know, it still rings true now. I still remember like thinking, how can this happen? Um, There were a lot of casualties and so many deaths. So here we go. Yeah. On June 12, 2016, 29-year-old Omar Mateen, a U.S.-born Afghani man, walked into the Orlando Pulse nightclub with an AR-15 rifle, killing 49 people and wounding 53 others. Omar was the only son to parents Mir Sadiq Mateen and Shala Mateen. Omar benefited from male privilege within the Muslim culture. He didn't seem to be ambitious or motivated like his sisters. He definitely didn't pick up on the motivation gene. (laughs) In fact, his early years were marred by tales of him being very disruptive in class, attention-seeking, and being socially awkward. He would get in trouble for trying to make jokes that were very inappropriate, getting in trouble with teachers all the time. While this was playing out for Omar at school, his father had grandiose delusions that often embarrassed his children. So the Mateen children would distance themselves from their roots, hiding the fact that their family was from Afghanistan. They said they were Persian. And I believe that the like ancient Persian area like that, you know, if people say they're from Persia, usually they're from Iran. So oh. they were definitely lying. They thought it sounded cooler than being in any way associated with dad and a lot of things that would go on around their dad. That's sad. Omar ended up going to three different high schools due to suspensions and infractions. Supposedly, Omar was innocent and likable, but he couldn't back down from an argument and would always defend himself when confronted. He tried to get into sports and weightlifting to lose weight because he was made fun of for being overweight. He was known for taking steroids to help him with his body image issues. During his high school years, he did make a friend, and this friend admits that Omar was super awkward but would never have characterized him as violent, homophobic, or aggressive. Omar left regular high school and decided to continue his education in an adult continuation school, where he graduated top of his class. It turns out he was starting to come into his own after his former high school days. He enrolled in a community college and studied criminal justice. He told his friend that he saw himself in uniform buffed out. (laughs) During this time, he got a job at a corrections facility close to home as a trainee, but he lost this job in six months when he started making comments about bringing a weapon to college. This was two days before the Virginia Tech incident. So after being fired, Omar started slacking off at college too, sleeping in class and not coming in. That's when Omar did the next best thing and applied to be a security guard. He worked intake at a juvenile assessment center and ended up working security after the BP oil spill. 
He was filmed on a documentary that they were doing about the BP oil spill. And while he was on the job there, he made some pretty blunt comments. He was saying, no one gives a shit here. Like, everyone just is out to get paid. He is recorded as saying, they're like hoping for more oil to come out and more people to complain so they'll have the jobs. Because once people get laid off here, it's going to suck for them. They want more disaster to happen because that's where the money making is. So that's pretty (laughs) messed up. Yeah, that's crazy. He was recorded on a documentary about this and then he's like in the news again later exactly so weird he would just make these off the wall comments that would just be like why why would you say that or think that right so he really was showing a lot of signs of just you know being socially awkward and having issues with um you know his perception of reality and also like other people's perception they just thought he was this unruly kid who like had attitude problem but really i think he just probably didn't know how to relate to people Mm -hmm. And so he was just viewed in, like, the most negative way all yeah. the time. Yeah, like, weird aggression towards random things. <laughs> yeah. It also kind of, like, caught my attention that he was talking about being buff. And so I wonder, you know, he obviously had body image issues. And so I just wonder if he thought that he was sounding macho by saying some of these comments. Mm. Like, he was trying to portray himself, like, puff himself up to be something that he wasn't. So maybe he had an idol in mind that he is trying to be like, and maybe. So in his 20s, Omar was feeling the pressure to marry from his father. So he decided to try online dating. He first connected with a young woman named Satora Yusufi, uh, an immigrant from Uzbekistan, who initially found him to be a nice, funny man who treated his family well and aspired to become a police officer. He was religious. He made at least two Islamic pilgrimages to Saudi Arabia, but during this time, he never expressed sympathy for radical Islamists or terrorists. She did confirm that he could be homophobic, but it, this wasn't something he spoke of often or was extra about. Soon after their marriage in April 2009, Missy Sufi said he began beating her and isolating her in their Florida home. With the help of her parents in New Jersey, she fled within the year. Omar then went to a site called Arab Lounge where he met Noor Salman in early 2011. Omar remarries in October 2012 in Hercules, California, yet he continues online flirting with women and stalking. It's around this time at his security guard job that Omar starts telling people that he is involved in Al-Qaeda, Sunnis, and Shia? Shia. And if anybody knows, like, those two different sects, like... Sunnis are total opposites from Shia. So you can't be part of both. And so that was kind of a really telltale thing that he was making things up is that he would say, oh, I'm part of Al-Qaeda. Oh, I'm a Sunni. Oh, I'm a Shia. But they, the two don't mix. So it's almost like he's not fitting in. So he's trying to like stand out. Like, how can I get attention? Like, and again, like trying to throw out that bravado, like trying to be yeah. like, I'm tough. Like, 
don't mess with me. I'm part of Al Qaeda. Like who says that though? Like, especially in the United States, like you're not going to get a pat on the back for that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Omar Mateen was not invisible to law enforcement during this time. Mohammed Malik, a man from Mateen's mosque, notified the FBI that Mateen spoke of Anwar al-Awlaki, the American-born Muslim scholar and cleric who acted as a spokesman for al-Qaeda in the Arab Peninsula. Mateen praised him for his actions and also watched all Alaki's videos. The FBI took the report and the result inconclusive. Then one of Omar's acquaintances, Monar Muhammad Abu Saha, a former member of Mateen's mosque, became a suicide bomber in Syria, so he's back under the investigation by the FBI. This was dismissed as well because Omar didn't hang out with this guy as more than an acquaintance. Omar became a guard at a golf course. Even with the chill atmosphere, he would still pick fights with anyone he thought was disrespectful. He would aggressively throw things around, but be careful not to lose his job. He was predatory to attractive women that would come through the gate. The husband of one of these women confronted him and that seemed to work. So he was obviously like more bark than bite. He mm-hmm. was taking steroids. So I was, I like was thinking roid rage. Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, like just too much, this guy. So the months leading up to the attack, um, Mateen added his wife, Noor Salman, to his life insurance policy and made sure that she had access to his bank accounts. He transferred his share of the home in which his sister and brother-in-law live to them for just $10. Lastly, Mateen bought his wife an expensive piece of jewelry. In April or early May, Omar tried to get body armor and a thousand rounds of ammo, but was turned away because they don't sell body armor. (laughs) And that's the Lotus Gunworks in Jensen Beach, Florida. So here he is. He's, you know, acting out. He's not doing great at work. He's pissing off clients and, like, people that he's supposed to be respecting. He's taking steroids. He's trying to put off this image, right? And now he's obviously gearing up for something, some sort of attack after the fact, right? So like people were asking the victims and like people that were in the club, like, had you seen him before? Like, had he come in? Like, was this a thing that he had been caging the area or whatever? His GPS said that he had not been in, you know, scoping out the area. When he Googled the nightclub that night, he was just looking for a club and not necessarily a gay club. When they actually talked to the gay community after the fact, um, they said that he had frequented the club. Mm. So they believe that Omar had come in a few times to the club prior to the night of the shooting. Various patrons also said that they had seen him on gay dating apps like Adam for Adam and Jacked. Some even said they had interacted with him on the site. Only one man claims to have actually had a sexual relationship with Omar, and he says that he knew that he was married and had a child. He gave an interview to Univision only, which is like the Spanish television. (laughs) Why? That's so weird. (laughs) So I think like Pulse Nightclub, I don't know if you remember some of the pages, but like a lot of them were Latin, so I wonder if he just felt comfortable in the moment to like speak in Spanish and like say that, but he only gave that 
interview to Univision. Yeah, it's a big um, Latin area, and then Univision is like Latin America, so that makes sense now. And so this guy gave a possible motive for the attack. He said that Omar had had a sexual encounter with two men, one of which was HIV positive. He had forgotten to divulge his diagnosis, which angered Mateen. And totally don't blame him, right? Because especially back then, like, you know, it could be life or death. Yeah, I feel like that's not something you really forget. (laughs) It's definitely not something you forget. Yeah, so that was pretty messed up. And I totally get why Omar, especially like if he let his guard down and he was actually doing this. And we think about the implications, right? He's Muslim. He's raised Muslim. He knows his dad's like trying to get him, you know, married off. So he does that. He complies and he has a wife, but he's not treating her well. Mm -hmm. And then he has this encounter. I mean, supposedly, right? Allegedly he has this encounter. And then like the first time he like probably does this, then he finds out he exposed himself to HIV possibly. That's a lot to take in. So how is he going to explain that to his wife? I mean, there's just so many things that could happen. Yeah. How is he going to deal with it? If it's true. Right. (laughs) Supposedly, Omar said that he would make him pay for this offense. So, um, again, I just wanted to give you the gay side of this because... Hello, my name is Lisa, and I am gay. I am a lesbian. And so hearing about this nightclub shooting in a gay club, like our first response, and I remember a lot of news agencies were saying, this is an attack on the gay community, all that stuff. And I totally bought it hook, line, and sinker. But it may have been that he might have been gay, and he may have just been like a jilted lover, like really upset over something like this, which I totally understand. I don't think it justifies, obviously, what he did. Mm -hmm. But I do understand like the rage, and he was kind of a ragey person, right? Yeah, definitely. (laughs) I mean, he said, I'll make you pay. There you go. The FBI deny this. They say that he didn't have any gay apps on his phone, that he didn't case the place, that he totally chose it at random. And um, the gay community, again, up to two years after the incident, were still saying the same story. Like, they still back up that that's what happened. And they said they gave all of their information to law enforcement and tried to give interviews, and nobody responded. Nobody called them. And they were kind of mad about that. Like, why would you not want to know this side of it? That's super weird. Yeah, because also if you're going to a club, I mean a club especially, like I would take an Uber or something. I'm not going to like drive my own car there. How are you going to get home? You're not going to a club probably to stay sober. I mean. (laughs) And what if he did have these apps, but he deleted them or like had a burner phone that he used for those types of things because Lord knows he doesn't want to get caught. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it seems like he was hiding this pretty well, but... There's a lot of people who have come out and said that they saw him on these apps and these websites. So it's like, what, all these people are lying? Like, I don't think so. And if the story was flip-flopping or if it was changing constantly, I would get it. Like, okay, we can't trust these people. Like, they said it in the, initially, but now, like, two years later, it's a different story. And, like, they right. they have different details. No, like, literally, like, I've read these interviews and they, they're saying the same things. They're saying that they saw him, that they, he may have come into the club a few times and they actually saw him in the club or they saw him on the apps and they interacted with him. So anyway, I don't know. But again, the FBI totally denies this and they say that that is not true. 
even though the people that have this information said that they were never contacted by police or the FBI to actually give their full stories. So we just wanted to give you that other side of the story. And now we will continue with what happened on June 4th. June 4th, 2016, Omar Mateen went to the St. Lucie gun sales and bought a Sig Sauer 223 caliber assault rifle at a firearm shop near his home in Florida. Then on June 5th, Mateen bought a Glock 17 at the same store. Ed Henson, owner of St. Lucie Gun Center, confirmed in a press conference that Mateen bought a handgun and a long gun there about a week or 10 days before the attack. He said, I'm truly, truly saddened and shocked by this terrorist attack. A former NYPD officer who worked out of the World Trade Center on September 11th, 2001, and was also a first responder at the flight 587 plane crash in Queens later that year. He said Mateen purchased both guns legally and separately and did not buy or inquire about body armor. He said Mateen also completed the three-day waiting period before buying a handgun under Florida law, but was allowed to walk out with the AR-15 type rifle the same day he bought it, also in compliance with Florida law. Even though Mateen had been twice investigated by the FBI for ties to terror networks, those investigations did not disqualify him from buying the guns. So, wow. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I'm not trying to make this into like a gun debate, but I know <laughs> I would think that there would be like certain protections. Like, okay, this person hasn't been investigated not once but twice. Yeah, and it's not like something minor he's literally has ties to terrorist things that's nuts (laughs) exactly and i don't want to profile people but right like ties to people who have been terrorists so it wasn't just because he's muslim he legit and then he buys the weapons within a couple days and the first day he can walk out with an ar-15 so many also like you know if he's going on a hunting trip with his buddies or whatever yeah you need a gun so go get a gun but he's buying a lot of guns I mean I don't know it feels like a lot of guns to me I think like not just one of those things but all those things put together should put up a red flag somewhere I don't know if we even have a system for that though so not to make this a gun debate like we're saying but like just It was just kind of shocking that he had been investigated twice and, you know, I get it. It didn't qualify him for being further investigated, but we had enough to want to investigate him. So let's just not let him buy weapons. Yeah, it feels very red flag city to me, but that's me. So in two days before Omar Mateen went on his shooting rampage, he bought plane tickets to California for his wife, child, and himself. The trip was planned for July 2016. Then he worked his normal shift as a security guard, spent hours at the Disney Springs shopping complex by himself. Then Omar went home and left the house angry with a bag of guns. Before midnight, Omar pulled up to the Pulse nightclub, only to leave and then return two hours later. At 1.58 a.m., Mateen fires the first shots into a crowd of around 300 people. Before and during the shooting rampage, Omar posted on his Facebook, 
claiming that America would now taste the Islamic State of Vengeance. So the FBI did look into his phone for searches that he did um, and his computers. And obviously there was a huge trial afterward. Um, and even though he wasn't alive for it, his wife was because they thought she was a co-conspirator. Mm-hmm. So they were looking into all his devices, right? And he was looking up at Disney, like, you know how he took his wife and kid there? He wanted to possibly shoot out there, but he changed his mind. Like, so part of that, when he was walking around by himself for hours, was him thinking, should this be the place that I do this? And then he changed his mind. And I don't know what changed his mind, but that's when he started Googling um, for clubs in Florida. And that's when he drove out and he found that one. And it could have been, again, like, it could be like the FBI says, and it could just be like a popular club. It probably came up like number one popular club in that area. So he goes to that. Um, Or it could be a place that he knew that he was going to take his vengeance out on because of what had happened, supposedly, with that guy. I looked up the Disney Springs, and it's an outdoor shopping, dining, and entertainment complex at the Walt Disney Resort in Florida. So... Kind of two totally different things, like a Disney area and then like a nightclub. They were suspecting that he wanted like maximum casualties. Oh my god. I would think though that what he chose was more probably maximum deaths because it is such a small place. And if you go crazy in there, you're going to hit more people than if they're just walking around freely. I'm just saying. I mean, in the past few years, because of all of these like um, shooting things that have happened... It's like, I feel really scared if I'm in a place where there's minimal exits, you know? I definitely have a fear of that now, and it's because of situations like these. Like, if you're in a nightclub, like, there's so few exits, and it's dark. That's totally valid, and I know for me, from my military training, sometimes I get PTSD, especially when I hear loud bangs. And I do start just immediately, my brain kicks in. I start looking for exits and what I'm going to do in that situation. Or I'll play out scenarios in my mind when I get there. Like, what would I do? Bang, it happens. What do I do now? I do do that with myself. I just don't say it out loud. But these are (laughs) things that I think. Because I don't ever want to be caught off guard or unprepared in a situation like that. So, um, yeah, I think that has definitely come up over the last, what, like 10, 12 years of just constant mass shootings like going on in the media and like seeing stuff all the time. The Orlando Sentinel reported that Mateen spoke with police throughout a series of phone calls between 2.35 a.m. and 3.25 a.m. on the night of the shooting. This is Mateen. I want to let you know I'm in Orlando and I did the shooting, he told dispatchers on the first call. I pledge my allegiance to Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi of the Islamic State. Mateen said repeatedly that the U.S. needed to end airstrikes and stop bombing Syria and Iraq. What am I to do here when my people are getting killed over there? You get what I'm saying, he said? In the recordings, the negotiator told Mateen that he wanted to help him. Look, I'm trying to figure out how to keep you safe and how to get this resolved peacefully because I'm not a politician. I'm not a government, he said. All I can do is help individuals and I want to start with helping you. Mateen responded by saying a vehicle outside was rigged with explosives that could take out the whole city block almost. Mateen pledged his allegiance to ISIS during these 911 calls and even called a CBS affiliate 
and said, I did it for ISIS, and I did it for the Islamic State. At 4 a.m., Omar texts his wife for the last time, asking if she's seen the shooting on the news. At 5.53 a.m., the police tweet that Omar Mateen is dead. Those texts to Omar's wife are the reason that they thought she was in on it. Oh. That she was some sort of accomplice. But over a long period of time, I think they really did investigate her. She was found to be innocent. Um, She may have heard him say weird stuff or like known that he bought weapons, but she didn't necessarily know he would go to this level. Yeah, and I think it's the whole thing of, like, his bark is bigger than his bite. Like, he's always talking, I'm going to get buffed up. I'm going to do this. And it's like, he said so much shit in the past. And, like, what has he gone through with? So who's he with? Al-Qaeda? Is he with ISIS? Is he a Sunni? Is he a Shia? Like, he just (laughs) says whatever. And I know this podcast, we're talking about how, you know, people use their belief systems to justify their crimes. And that's what he's trying to do here. He's trying to say it's about religion, but I don't know how religious this person really, really was. I mean, he's over there on dating apps when he's married. He's doing a lot that like don't exemplify any type of belief system. Um, We don't know if he may have been gay, Um, but I will say that truly, I don't think he knew who he was. And I don't know that he allowed himself the time for that. I think he was constantly like puffing himself up. Like you said, that whole thing about, Oh, I have explosives that he did not have explosives in that car. So he was just to the bitter end. Like I'm going to scare as many people as possible. Like you're going to feel my wrath, you know? Okay, so I'm not going to pretend to know everything there is to know about Islam or jihadists or what would prompt somebody to do something like this, but we do have to talk about the fact that Omar Mateen may have claimed to do this in the name of ISIS, but multiple times they investigated him and they didn't see any links to active terrorism on his part. Now, around this time frame, I know that there were people calling for lone wolf attacks, but that doesn't mean that he was really answering the call. I think for someone like Omar, whether he was super religious or not, he may have been looking for a way to prove himself, to become a hero maybe, or a martyr for a cause, because he really did want to make a statement, and this was his way to do that. Another thing that I researched when I was looking into Al-Qaeda and ISIS, the different groups, again, he talked about being Sunni at one point and then talked about being Shia. And they're very much different groups within the Muslim world. And they believe very differently, even though it's under the same banner as the Muslim religion, they are very different. It would be very strange for someone to say they're Sunni one day and then Shia the next. And also, even Al-Qaeda and ISIS are very different. Al-Qaeda began as like an anti-Soviet movement within Afghanistan because the Soviets, what we know now as Russia, Al-Qaeda generally was concerned with the infidel. They fought against the Soviets at that time, and then they fought against the U.S. So they would definitely be more apt to do things that were 
um, anti-infidel, have jihadists like do big scale things like the World Trade Center, like 9-11, you know, try to kill as many people as possible, where ISIS was usually more localized. So they wanted to control within the Muslim world and get people to do things the right way as they saw it. And there were calls for lone wolf attacks during this time frame, but it was very rare within ISIS at that moment in time. So for him to claim ISIS and, and do this in the name of ISIS would have been very rare. It doesn't mean that it couldn't happen, but it's just very rare. And of course, ISIS jumped on the chance as soon as he claimed ISIS and said that he did this in the name of ISIS. They jumped on that train. They were like, yes, you know, he did this for us. We we support that. But it was definitely not an ISIS-directed attack. It was something, obviously, that he did, and he claimed ISIS in that moment. It wasn't something they asked him to do, and he had no ties that they could find ever with any group in particular. And he definitely claimed allegiance to many different things within his life. He was always seemingly looking for some sort of direction and some sort of way to belong. He ended up killing 49 people and wounding 53. That's so many people. So many. I remember them playing like video to like, um, you know, people's audio and video of like what they were going through, people hiding in the bathroom, people screaming, yes. like the horror of that. I can't even imagine it. And again, it really did hit home for me because there are so few places that are safe spaces for LGBTQIA people. It's rough. Like I know people think it's a fad and everybody says, oh, it's cool to be gay, whatever mm -hmm. they, okay. You go out there and come out every five minutes. You have to deal with people's attitudes, with people shunning you, losing family members. And so when you have a place like Pulse, where people feel safe to go, you can be yourself. No one's going to judge you there. And then you have somebody walk in and do that. It's just frightening. He had a lot of inner conflict. So it's really sad he took everyone down with him. Yes, I agree. Anyway, thanks for listening, everybody, and we hope you'll tune in next time. We're going to have another great case for you, and I promise my editing skills will get better. <laughs> now, everyone, Talisa, what a good job she did on editing, because I didn't take any part in it, so that's all her. <laughs> but and you do all the social media. You're so, so good. <laughs> you tried so hard. I really appreciate it. Um, so make sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok at God Made Me Do It Pod. And if you have any suggestions for future episodes, you can write us at God Made Me Do It Pod at gmail.com and stay tuned. See you next time.